Welcome to Expert Minutes. I'm John McGuire. Today we have a phenomenal guest. Kate Muir is here, and she's the producer of the new hit Channel 4 documentary, Davina McCall, Sex, Myths, and the Menopause, and the author of the forthcoming book, Everything You Need to Know About the Menopause, But We're Too Afraid to Ask. She is on the executive board of the Menopause Charity and was previously the chief film critic of the Times. She's the author of three novels. How are you doing today, Kate? Good, thank you. Delighted to be on. It's been an incredibly busy week after the documentary, which caused a bit of a sensation in England and Scotland. And uh, so we've been really, really busy dealing with the kind of outpouring on social media of people saying, why didn't anyone talk about this before? Is it a taboo subject in the UK? It's a taboo subject worldwide. It is breaking through in the UK. It's worse in America where people aren't talking about it, I don't think, properly. I think women haven't talked about it because it's they feel it's aging, they feel it's embarrassing. People haven't talked about it at work. And people have to deal with the symptoms in private and they find it really, really hard. And what we've changed with my book and the documentary and talking about menopause is we've simply realized it's a hormonal deficiency. We need to pay attention to that. If possible, we need to replace our hormones. But if not, we need to do something about our lifestyle to make this easier for us. So for women, understanding the science and what's happening to them and the mental health aspects of the menopause, because it's just not about hot flushes, it's about a whole lot of other stuff too. And understanding this amazing kind of midlife transition that's gonna to happen to all of us is very, very important. So basically we're changing the narrative and hopefully that's gonna spread worldwide. And that's fantastic because there is, I've seen in the mental health community, you know, for people who do suffer in silence mostly with their mental health. There is a lot of breaking the stigma going on for things like that. So this seems to me to be another version of that because you're, you're right, it does intrinsically tie into a person's mental health. Well, we all have always talked about midlife crises for men and for women. And what we realize more and more is that there's something happening in the minds of women and it's to do with hormones and hormone health. And the suicide rate of women rockets up during menopause and the divorce rate between men and women goes up just in that perimenopause late 40s period. I mean, aside from children leaving home and things like that, there's something else going on. And I think if we understand the way we're changing, it would help so much to deal with our lives. But it's really there's a bigger murder about it. You know, it's a secret. Nobody's talking about it. And when the program came out with Davina McCall, who's a, who's, you know, a huge presenter and was told in her career not to talk about the menopause and not to mention she was having trouble with it because it was unsavory and aging. And you look at all the Hollywood stars and you think, oh, none of them are talking about the menopause, but so many of them are in their late 40s and early 50s. I wonder what they're doing about it, apart from having a healthy exercise regime. And you think, gosh, I just wish people would be more honest about this. So I think this is a lot about honesty. And I've been very honest in my own book about my own menopause story, which was chaos, nightmare. And um, it's helped me to talk to other women because usually I'm the journalist asking the questions. And suddenly I was also in that mess as well. And I got through the other side of that mess, got through the corridor, got out the other side. And then I thought, I really don't want this to happen to other women. I really want to have a very big, loud public feminist 
conversation about this subject. Now, you started as a film critic. Yeah. It's a different kind of writing that you're doing now where, you know, before you are reviewing films and for all intents and purposes, you're informing the public about what's happening on the silver screen. This seems to be a little more of a calling in a way because you are helping out people to sort out things that are happening in their actual lives and just not when they're squeezing into a seat for two hours. How does that feel to you making the transition from film critic to writing something that is helping people around the world? Well, I feel that I'm on a mission, which is quite funny. And I always think of that Blue Belt Blues Brothers uh, slogan, which is, we're on a mission from God. <laughs> I'm not on a mission from a God, but I'm on a mission for women. And so it has altered the way I work as a journalist in that I will do anything, ask anyone anything, like to get in touch with anyone. So there's been a different level of commitment in me about what I'm doing. But on the other hand, I was an investigative journalist. I was a columnist. I was a foreign features writer in America and France. I wrote a book about women soldiers going into combat. So in a way, lots of my work has been about talking to people, investigating them, finding out about justice and what's right and what's fair. And while I was a film critic, one of the huge things I got involved in was Women and Hollywood, which campaigns for more women directors and more diversity on screen. So I was a feminist film critic, I suppose. And I was always sort of, you know, at festivals doing talks with women, causing trouble at Cannes when they only insisted that women who wore high heels could go up the red carpet. And if you went up the red carpet with flat heels, they complained and sent you away. So it was about kind of changing the narrative in film. So by that time, you know, when I left the Times as a film critic and I went to do a, a TV writing course for a few months just to learn how to do that, I was already fired up. I was already primed for, for something. And, you know, in fact, it turned out to be my own menopause disaster that plummeted me into this place. Wow. So that is a road that led you here and you were on that road yourself. How did it feel to tell your own story through the voices of other people throughout the book? Because a lot of writing does come from the author's perspective. Did you feel closer to the subjects you were writing about and the subject you were writing about as it was happening to you in real time? Yeah, I mean, what changed me, what happened to me is I ended up with the wrong kind of hormones, which I got privately by mistake because I didn't, I was scared of the breast cancer rumors about hormones. And so I ended up being very sick and I went to a really good doctor who sorted me out, got me body identical hormones, which are the best kind, plant-based, really safe, regulated. And when I was in that position where suddenly I felt great, I felt normal and my old self, I was talking to this doctor and she said to me, I had a patient in here who for seven years didn't leave her house. We went into a complete depression filled with anxiety, just couldn't deal with so many problems. And she was diagnosed as bipolar. She had 12 sessions of electric shock therapy to her brain. And then after a while, after coming close to attempting suicide, she decided really, really to research what was going on. She just didn't understand. She was a teacher, smart woman wondering about what's happening to herself. And then she realized something hormonal was going on. And the, she and her husband managed to get a camper van because she couldn't leave the house. They took it down to the doctor's surgery, which was miles and miles away, parked outside. She went in, she got a hormone replacement therapy. And a week later, she left her house for the first time in seven years and walked her dog. Oh, it how wonderful. Basically, 
her hormone receptors in her brain were not getting the hormones they needed. And we all know how much hormones, men and women, can affect our lives. You know, it's huge. And that story changed my life because I thought, I don't want that to happen to anyone else. I had no idea this was so, so involved with being a mental health issue too. That was it. I was on the bandwagon. I thought, and I left that doctor's surgery. I got on the train. I rang one of my friends and said, we're making a documentary about this. I've never made a documentary before, but I'm going to do it. And, you know, 1.3 million people watched it the other week. A million more are watching it on catch up. And you think, hmm, there are 13 million menopausal women in Britain of menopausal age and older. And you think, well, a lot of them have watched the documentary and a lot of them are talking to their friends about it. And one of the amazing things we did was we set up a program with the menopause charity to give doctors free menopause education because the problem was doctors didn't know any more than we did about menopause or it being a hormonal deficiency or what they could do about it. And uh, so we've had 4,000 doctors sign up in Britain for that program. And there are 10,000 doctors' practices so we've really, really made a big difference in a very few days to the knowledge of menopause in Britain. And, you know, I'm kind of astonished. I think, well, if I get run over by a bus now, I've done something useful. I can go away. <laughs> well, let's hope you don't get run over by the bus, you know? <laughs> so, you know, you said something very interesting about the doctor thing. And, and also, congratulations on all of that. That's amazing and so helpful to so many people. You know, you said that a lot of doctors, they didn't really have the information or the knowledge. Do you think that is partially because of maybe lack of funding or because of the stigma about it? Nope. It's medical sexism. In Britain, 41% of universities do not have menopause as a compulsory module. And that is, you know, 51% of the population go through menopause. And it's perfectly acceptable for older women just to disappear, get old, get stiff joints, fall away, stop doing their jobs. And nobody's looking at that in the long term. And certainly in the Royal College of GPs, which is our main curriculum for doctors, it's not a module in itself. It's listed very much down at the bottom of one other module under other. You know, it just would save the country a lot of money if we looked into menopause and looked into replacing women's hormones because it costs maybe just over 100 pounds a year to give women hrt for a year and it costs 15,000 pounds for a hip replacement and taking hrt stops you getting osteoporosis one in two women get osteoporosis you do the maths it's extraordinary when you think about it and suddenly when you think about it from a scientific point of view um you know, looking after women makes incredible economic sense for the country. Absolutely. And for me, it's very shocking to see that something that is so important and affects so many people was just kind of left to the wayside and not really talked about or taken seriously until you kick the door open, which is great. And it's something that needs to happen more in a lot of different aspects of the medical industry. So that's awesome. Yeah. One of the things that really changed was the interpretation of breast cancer and HRT. Because as you know, if you say the word HRT to anybody, they'll go, oh, that gives you breast cancer. And it was due to a huge American study in 2002 that put up those huge headlines which said HRT increases your risk of breast cancer. And it was called the Women's Health Initiative Study. And it actually turns out that they were giving women 
quite old synthetic HRT, which was, was made partly out of horse urine, extracted from horse urine, and the rest was synthetic progestins. And the new HRT we're using almost 20 years on is plant-based. It's made from yams, and it's a direct copy of your own hormones. And yet we're looking back at these old studies, which is actually a different drug, basically. It's still got the name hormone replacement therapy, but the ingredients are completely different. And we are applying that to all women. And of course, women don't know that. And some of them are still using the old stuff. And one of the huge campaigns we're trying to do is to get people onto what we call body identical hormones, these plant-based hormones that have a much safer cancer profile and, and are really better for your body too. And obviously it's better, you ask a 12 year old, you know, is it better to have a copy of your own hormone or this funny thing, you know? Um, synthetic chemical horses, you know, and it's sort of a no-brainer. Yet, since nobody's campaigning on this, the health services don't find out and they don't change and health insurance doesn't change. And most health insurance does not cover menopause because it's a natural process. But as it turns out, we can do something about it. And it's the beginning of some very, very rough bits of aging for women from sudden aging when their hormones fall off a cliff. And men, it's completely different because their testosterone descends very slowly on a gentle slope till they're about 80, whereas ours just go off the cliff at 50. So there's this sudden moment where women's bodies are feeling kind of pain and joints and arthritis and mental health issues, and we're not recognizing that. Lots of women get through it fine. You know, you'll, everybody's granny and mum has said, oh, I didn't notice that I got through it. It was all okay. But then when you dig into what happened, what broke down, you know, they started staying in, they didn't go out. There's usually an interesting story for about 50% of people that it did change their lives, but they didn't know. Yeah, and it's tough. Suffering in silence with any form of mental health issue, it not only impacts you, it impacts the lives of everyone around you directly. And to your point, most health insurance doesn't cover things that have to do with mental health, especially not something that happens at the level that you're talking about with the menopause. You know, with that being said as well, there is a lot of misinformation out there when it comes to different types of medical issues, right? I do find it kind of strange that the last big chat about this happened 19 years ago. So when you Google things about menopause, that study comes up at the top and it's just like big bold letters, this is bad for you. And then everyone who sees it, because a lot of people don't follow up once they get the diagnosis on the internet that stops them dead in their tracks. So I'm hoping for you and for everyone, this is something that will help kind of kick those doors open further and say, no, no, wait, there's this. We are at war with Dr. Google. I think fair enough to say that. And there's also a kind of, because women have started recognizing this problem and talking about it in public, but yet are terrified of taking hormones, which of course are the natural products you would put back into your body. Um, they are taking every potion and every herbal cure and every piece of therapy, which is great, but there's a lot of people exploiting vulnerable women out there, setting up sort of femtech organizations that say, we will help you with your menopause, you know, buy our powder for 90 pounds a month. And really you don't need to do anything about menopause except lead a healthy life, eat a decent diet, you know, take exercise, maybe meditate. But there are things that you could tell anyone in a sentence, you do not need 
500 strange potions that are going to make you better. Interestingly, I did a chapter in my book on alternative therapy for menopause, because there are some women who can't take hormones. And we did some experiments with very high grade, carefully um, calibrated CBD oil. And that seemed to help the women we tested it on with uh, hot flushes and with sleeping. It seemed to work a bit on the nervous system and sort of soy based foods, soy flavonoids, that sort of thing. But they make a teeny, teeny difference compared to kind of bringing yourself back to normal. But there's just people selling a lot of snake oil out there. And I think we really, really need to have science in our hands everywhere we go and science up front and truth up front and kind of win the media war. And there's a huge social media movement in England, certainly, and spreading from there about the menopause. And I think, you know, there are menopause warriors. People are talking about menopause power in the way that they talked about period power a few years ago. So I think this generation of women, you know, who are working women who juggled, you know, kids and full-time jobs and, you know, being equal in the workplace, they're just not going to sit down and take it. I think there's a change in attitude and we're going to see a kind of fifth wave of feminism come through talking about this. Oh, I love it. So we've talked a lot about the actual documentary and what brought you to it. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about the menopause charity that you're serving on the executive board of? Sure. This was one of the great things that came out of lockdown. People all around the country uh, set this up on Zoom. We suddenly realized there was nothing there at all. And we needed to get this information out to women that, you know, it is a hormonal deficiency. We can do something about it. Let's not sit in silence and let's not sit at home crying. And I think lockdown, when people were having such hard times, we realized that the need was even higher than we thought, but we also all had time in the evening to set it up. So basically what we're doing is we launched last Friday, just after the documentary, and we set up this thing, which was the GP's training course. And as I said, you know, 4,000 people signed up for that. And that's going to make a huge difference because I think we've got to educate, educate, educate both women and doctors and nurses. And the other thing we're going to do is hopefully when the donations come in from, you know, women and we've got a crowd funder and maybe from some big companies too who've got menopause policies, then we are going to set up a helpline because everybody's menopause is different and everybody's hormones are different. And they're on their own somewhere. They don't have someone to talk to. If they can send in a couple of questions to you and you can say, here's the best resource, here's where to go. Don't go to Dr. Google. Look at this bit on Google that's the correct scientific bit, you know. And it's it's just very important to get good evidence-based information out there. So we want to have a helpline. And we also want to just listen to women because I think that's really, really important is to just be there People can pick up the phone and say, I feel awful today. This is what happens. And hopefully some of our volunteers are people who've been through this themselves. And they'll be able to say, I felt awful today too. And this is what I did when that happened to me. And these are the resources you can go to. So it's very much becoming a network as well as just a charity, I think. Well, that's brilliant. So we did this episode a little bit in reverse because normally we start talking about early career and this and that. But I think everything that you said was very much the most important thing and should have been at the top of the episode. So thank you for sharing all that with me. We're going to hit the go home on the episode. So I do want to ask a couple of questions about your career. One of the things being 
what was the best advice you've been given about your career? You know, we know that you've been a journalist. We know that you've been in the documentary world. What got you there? What was the thing that someone told you that set you on the right course and set you up? There's two things. Um, one, I'm very nosy. And my favorite book when I was a little girl was called Harriet the Spy. And yeah. it was a little girl in New York who wandered around with her notebook spying, you know, and going in people's dumb waiters and writing about their lives. And I basically spied on all my neighbors and took notes after I'd read that book. And that's what I've become. I've become this spy into other people's lives. But in a way, I'm no longer doing it clandestinely. I'm doing it and saying, is this what you want to say? Is this what you want your voice to be? So I started out as Harriet the Spy. And then I suppose the great thing about journalism, it, it can fit around whatever you want to do. So if you're in America, you can do you know, investigations. If you're in Britain, you can do campaigns. You could, you know, wherever I went, my skill of being able to write an interview was useful to me in, in the kind of goals I wanted to have. But I always think I've taken quite a lot of risks in my career. And the, the last leaving, you know, a staff job at the Times to go and do a stupid TV course, you know, was anything going to come out of that? And then deciding to write a documentary when I'd never written a documentary. And there's um, a wonderful phrase from Margaret Cameron, and she says, take the leap and the net will find you. And I think if you're doing the right thing and you take the leap, the net will find you. And this is just what's happened in the last year or two is that I've taken this risk because I feel it needed to be done and it's worked out. I mean, thank God, you know, <laughs> could have gone really wrong. That's great. So for anyone who is wanting to get into documentary making, writing and journalism, what advice would you give them to get started? I don't know. I'm a producer writer and I've collaborated with a brilliant director. So I think you need to collaborate with the right people. So, I mean, she is the eyes and the vision and the music and the rhythm and the accuracy. She's very good at doing that bit and I can do the writing bit. I mean, I get in there and hang out on a production and find out what to do, you know. And I think if you've got a good idea, the idea will sell itself. And you can write that idea in a page. And if it's urgent enough and it's important enough, people will go, yes, we need this. Somehow we will get this to screen. And I think if you have the right idea, that that's the first step. And you've got to hone your writing. We wrote the script 35 times. You've got to do the work. Yes, you definitely got to do the work. It's been brilliant chatting with you. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. It's been great. Well, this was another awesome episode of Expert Minutes. I'm John McGuire. And remember, if your day job's not your dream job, keep hustling. Hey nerds, I'm Sarah, the paper nerd, and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, The Paper Fold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network.